Hello, Gregoire. Hello, Edgar. Hey, how are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. So tell our audience a little bit about what we are going to talk today in the podcast. So today we are going to talk about social aspects in the relationship between patients and psychoanalysts. Can you expand that a little bit? Yes, I can indeed. <laughs> and I will. Thank you for asking. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I was practicing and that question. <laughs> I know. It's not like we reversed. So mm. first, we are going to talk about social conventions and what we do with it. Then we're going to move to the question of the seduction. Then a section on how the analyst comes as a third, both in the social and outside of it. And finally... Just for the fun of it, we are going to have a little segment on to be a psychoanalyst in our social life. I want to say that at some point you guys will hear some sound-related glitches. I'm sorry about that. I don't really know where it came from. I tried to edit them, but in advance, sorry. Before we jump into our discussion today, we didn't do, we didn't record a follow-up podcast from the one we did on racism. Any reasons in particular you would like to share with our audience? As I mentioned on Facebook and Twitter, we didn't have any reaction except one. Mm -hmm. One person sent us an email that was actually uh, completely on the spot. My thought was we will certainly go back to this podcast. Uh, we will actually address what this person mentioned, but maybe not in a podcast in which the title will include the term racism because mm -hmm. it seems to scare people away. We would like to remind the audience that we are recording this introduction to the podcast in February 2021. We are still in the midst of a pandemic and the podcast that you will listen to in a few minutes was recorded. Yes, indeed. This podcast, like many others, was recorded before March 2020. So there will be no mention of the current pandemic that we are experiencing. So as you listen to our discussion on the social and the psychoanalyst, keep that in mind. Maybe after March 2020, some things have changed in how we interact with our patients. Something to discuss in a follow-up, perhaps. Please feel free to send us your comments, questions, uh, disagreements, criticism, everything. We are very happy to hear about people who can bring some new ideas. I mean, we are really looking forward to that. Yes, indeed. Well, my name is Grégoire Pierre. And this is Edgar Danielson. Welcome to Discussions on Psychoanalysis. NPAP offered a class with Nancy McWilliams on difficult patients a few years ago. She started by saying that if you want to allow a psychoanalysis to happen, you need to have a somewhat antisocial reaction. 
meaning that you're not going to be as shocked as everybody listening to some things. You're not going to react the way people would be expected to react in any kind of social setting. Because yes. if you're shocked, then it will probably uh, foreclose the uh, conversation. Or said from a different perspective, what Nancy McQuillan said means that the usual social cues need to be explored and discerned clearly in the process. So, for example, if someone says hello as the patient enters the room, what do we do with that hello? A social cue outside the therapy room would be to say hello. How are you? Responding the way others may respond in the person's life, meaning friends or relatives, forecloses the exploration of the inner world of the person. This is very important to keep in mind. Yet, we find also that in our daily practice, we do have socialization aspects. Mm -hmm. And for instance, you talked about some social cues. Yes, the greeting. When a person comes in and says, hello, how are you? Asks the question, do I respond? Do I remain silent? Of course, that depends on my understanding of the person's psyche and always taking into consideration if my response may foreclose an exploration. For instance, when you see a patient for the first time, do you try to shake their hands? What I do is I respond in kind. So if the person comes in and this is the first time and the person uh, follows a social cue that requires them to shake hands and does that with me, I will shake hands. Do you hug too? No one has hugged me in the first session. Okay. <laughs> Not yet. And in fact, in all the years that I've been practicing, only two individuals in two very specific situations hugged me. And what did you do? In both cases, I felt that it was appropriate to respond in kind, meaning I hugged back. And in both cases, it opened the door for deeper connection to the patients, two of them. I see. I think I somewhat do the same. I know that I have a tendency to try to shake people's hand mm -hmm. when I see them for the first time. Mm -hmm. I do not insist when I see that they don't reciprocate. Yes. Something that I remember now is that when I started studying psychoanalysis, one of our professors, who besides that was actually a great clinician, said that when someone comes in, and refuses to shake hands, we should always start thinking about paranoia. Mm. It was really one of my first class, and I remember being so impressed by such a statement. It was so strong. The Indeed. guy was so sure, and it was so like some kind of key that was given to me to understand right away something important. Mm -hmm. I realized later on that maybe on that idea, he might have been too extreme. The interpretation sounds very rigid, it sounds going immediately into a diagnosis of paranoia. Just not rigid, but systematic. Indeed. Yeah, but yeah I guess that's what I, I'm trying to, to say. It's a box that you check. Yeah. Really, I insist the guy is a great clinician besides that, and I learned tons from him. And usually it's true, it was a lot more subtle. And also it made me realize, working in the U.S., how probably this statement could come from a country where shaking hands is a very accepted custom, mm -hmm. while in the U.S., less so. Indeed, and New York City, much less, because of all the germs and people are... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe that's paranoia, you see? <laughs> Maybe, but also the I'm fear... I'm exaggerating now here. <laughs> well, there is something of a paranoia, though, but <laughs> yes. also the fear of not being efficient. 
Mm-hmm. Like if you get sick, it's not just that you're sick, it's that you will miss work. And that is probably, especially for New Yorkers or people who live in big cities and where there's no social net, where it's a big fear. Mm-hmm. Like you have to perform all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you get sick, it's terrible in that sense. Yeah. Going back to the shaking hands, you asked me if I do it in the first session. I said only I respond in kind mm-hmm. if a person does it. What about after the first session if someone keeps shaking hands with you? Have you had that kind of situation? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I have patients who do shake hands mm-hmm. and some patients, they don't. And sometimes I forget that they don't. And it leads to somewhat awkward situation mm-hmm. where I throw my hand at them yeah. and then I realize that they don't shake hands. So I take it back and they mm-hmm. see me doing that. Then they move on. Yeah, I feel like it's a good thing to try. Mm-hmm. And so, to me, it's um, part of the work that you're going to do with a patient in the sense that they might be able to witness that you're not angry at them, that you're not destroyed by the fact that maybe you look like a fool for a few seconds, mm-hmm. that they don't reciprocate, mm-hmm. that they can have their own subjectivity and you're not going to be mad at them, mm-hmm. even if it doesn't fit exactly what you would do. It is certainly part of a general dynamic between you and your patient in terms of accepting castration, Mm -hmm. accepting differences and building on that instead of being crushed by it. So what you are saying is that it has happened to you that you extend your hand to shake Mm -hmm. the patient's hand and you realize that that was not part of the frame let me put it that way exactly for that patient exactly yeah Uh, so by doing that the frame was disrupted just a tad yes but that might be an opening for and the question is how do you react to that yes are you completely going to freak out Mm -hmm. are you going to feel personally hurt or not And I guess that it goes to um, another example. Like, what do you do with what patients tell you about you? Yes. Because in a social frame, you would certainly feel more open to react, to maybe defend yourself, explain yourself. Mm -hmm. So how, like, a patient is telling you that you're crap or a patient is telling you that you're great. Mm -hmm. How do you listen to that? I mean, did it happen to you? It has happened to me. A lot. And <laughs> that you're great, I assume. <laughs> I want to believe so, uh, but I have, not ca- believe I, ha- so. I have not counted those moments. I think I don't respond in kind. So the patient says, I hate you, and I won't go on saying, I hate you too. Or the patient says, I love you, and I, I love you too. So I don't respond in kind, but I open the, the door for ex- the exploration. What is hate? What does the patient mean by hating me? Uh, so you or loving in, me. So you keep it in a transference or the counter-transference? Of course, I'm very aware of my counter-transference, especially in those two cases where there's an extreme. You know, I'm the most fantastic analyst in the whole world, and or I'm crap, as you said. I try to explore in the transference, meaning I try to understand what is the patient saying first, and then in my mind I try to connect that to family history if there's enough information. If not, I'll keep exploring. So you're trying to keep it in a transference and I feel like sometimes it's extremely useful, but also sometimes we do make mistakes. Yes, and if that's the case and I am fully aware of it, I have no issues after checking with myself to say something like, you know, I'm sorry my words hurt you, if that's the case. Mm. Because it's, as you say, it's not the analysis of the transference in that case, I made a mistake i disrupted the relationship and i tried to repair first and then explore with the patient 
I find that it is probably much harder to keep a psychoanalytic stand when patients are subtly pleasing us mm -hmm. than when they are subtly complaining about us. Yes. When it's gross, flatteries or gross complaints, it's easier. It's easier to see. Yeah. But subtle flatteries, I found that it takes me more time to get a sense of how, what to do with it. Mm-hmm. When there's a discomfort, when they're not happy with me, it's actually much easier for me to feel like either I messed up mm -hmm. or feel like from what I know of the patient that something might be repeating and try to explore that. Yes. I mean, in some ways, we always repeat. I think that's the thing. When we say we're sorry for what we did, in some ways, it's also in the transference. To me, there is no such thing as a transference-free relationship. So even if you can be more aware that it is probably more about what you actually did than the fantasy, some fantasy is still attached to it. And I feel mm -hmm. like there's some aspect to repairing that can occur when you stop analyzing, I mean, directly, and say you're sorry. And I think it actually helps future shift in the fantasy. It will help the patient later on be more comfortable with reshaping their expectations. You mean if there is an apology? Yeah. That's what you, okay. My take is that I agree with you. We are in relationship with the patients and at the forefront there might be a transferential image, meaning the patient can see me as the father, let's say, just as an mm -hmm. example. And at some other points the patient can see me as the human being that I am, not his father. The decision I make needs to take into account who is the patient seeing right now. What about jokes? Do you well, have patients who joke with you? Yes, yes. I usually give a lot of weight to jokes in terms of the analysis because I think many of them, they convey an unconscious wish or for the patient unconscious aggression. But again, it depends on the patient and what's going on so in what, the room. What, can you give us a sense of what would have been an aggressive joke? Some people may look at sarcasm as an aggression. It's a veiled aggression. Even when it is not about you. If it's sarcasm about other people, other, I also ponder what's mm -hmm. underneath the funny thing okay. that the person is saying. Yeah. What if the funny part of the comment is a way to smooth the edge of envy? Mm -hmm. or aggression, or let's say hurt, you know, a patient who's talking about a breakup and begins to make jokes mm. about the breakup. What is there? Do you let yourself laugh? Sometimes I cannot laugh. But sometimes you do let yourself laugh. I do. Again, it depends. And I have found moments with certain patients where I need to ask myself, why am I laughing? Yes. Why are we laughing right now? Because I think there's meaning to when we both join in doing something. The other side of the coin is true. What about my tears? What if I become tearful exactly, with a patient? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? In what ways am I joining the but patient? But you let yourself have tears. Uh, sometimes are difficult not to. <laughs> in the same way with the laughter. But yeah. this is a self-reflection. I will mm -hmm. ponder carefully. What does my tears convey? What are they saying? Mm -hmm. Both with the, for the patient and for me. We are again on this idea that we let ourselves experience something mm -hmm. without blocking us ahead of time. And yet, this is not all there is. Like, we let yeah. ourselves laugh, we let ourselves cry, 
mm-hmm. not systematically. Indeed, sometimes you feel like the patient is trying too hard to make you laugh. Sometimes you feel yes. like the patient is trying too hard to make you cry. Yes. And so you don't get to laugh, you don't get to cry in this moment, mm-hmm. but sometimes you actually do. And when you do, after you did it, you start thinking, what did that mean? I had situations where with some patients, they would start to talk. And I remember, especially when I started working at your RCC, Clinical Center at NPAP, I would have laughs that I understood later on were anxious laughs. Yes. And it was, I think, too early for me to understand why. Because I don't remember having that in France. And I would laugh and I would feel bad. And eventually I understood, right or wrong, I understood that I was laughing because I was so uncomfortable with what was Mm -hmm. underlying in what my patient was saying. It yes. was not the manifest content. It was latent yeah. content mm-hmm. that was actually so overwhelming. And probably the disparity between a manifest content that was so simple and numb. Mm-hmm. And I realized how much the latent content was heavy and depressed. Yes. Intense. And like, yeah, very, very intense. After that, I would address it as fast as possible and be like, why are we laughing, by the way? I ask the same question. Why are we laughing? And <laughs> it, it actually calms me down. <laughs> yes. And we move back to an analytic frame, even if we were still in an analytic frame. Mm-hmm. But we go back to a classical one where we question what the hell is happening. Now we are going to talk more specifically about the question of seduction and agreement. All that said, I think we are going to the question of seduction and the question of agreement or agreeing with patients. We talked about that when we were preparing the podcast. Sometimes, instead of staying silent, we actually encourage a patient. We can tell a patient was very insightful. This actually comes at a price. I think the cost would be that, let's say I tell a patient that's very insightful and it's an intervention that is perhaps out of place or not being, well, I have not reflected well on that comment, then the cost could be that the patient feels that they have to offer insightful comments to feed me. And this happens not only with expressions like that's very insightful or, but what about the dreams, for example? If the patient picks up that I love dreams, Yeah, I'm pretty sure they will come with dreams in every session. Then it forecloses the exploration with the patient because the patient will try to please me. And I would say there's a structural difference between the fact that some people might learn something from you Mm -hmm. outside of therapy, like they research you and they find something and then they use it in therapy trying to help you, which is very different from the way sometimes, and I go back to the idea of seduction, what we say to a patient might actually be experienced and actually might be on our part an attempt to seduce the patient. That's can actually put the toll on the patient because some will just and that's the thing that's a tricky thing when we work is that for some patient it's actually going to be very helpful because it will help feed their very weak narcissism or maybe we can put it differently but it would make them feel better and it will help them overcome some difficulties and it will help them confront internal conflicts Because they will feel supported, they will feel loved. But for some other patient, that love is going to be a prison. Yes. And I find that it is very difficult to know in that sense when to talk, when not to talk, and how we should talk. 
Yeah. Certainly the idea that we should be completely silent or that we should not answer to any social cues seems foreign to my practice. Like, for instance, when patients say, how are you? And uh, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Then what th why, why are you asking the question? Look, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing. But I, in We some are. ways, I know that there's something interesting to it. Mm -hmm. It is interesting to use the psychoanalytic frame as a way to really help patients completely reflect on what they do. And it's true that it is interesting to help someone wonder why the hell would I ask this person how he or she is? Mm -hmm. It's a valuable question. But should we ask the question every time with every patient? Yes. Then the whole frame becomes too rigid. There are patients who may... Maybe what you mean is systematic. Yeah, it's interesting that it's we're using two different words. Um, I experience that as rigidity. But it is rigid. Yes. But it's just rigid all the time. It's I rigid all the time. The, the and problem. from my perspective, it doesn't take into account that we have different types of patients with different diagnoses, with different experiences of life, and so on and so forth. But sometimes we need to be rigid. That's the thing. There is, let's say I start working with a patient, and after a while we get into a rhythm. I am in charge of the frame, mm -hmm. as I see it. For that patient, the frame will be clearly established. And any deviation from that frame, it's a window to understand the inner world of the patient and what's happening in the transference. Yes. But for each patient, I have a slightly different frame because they need different things from me. Yeah. Or they experience me in different ways. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Does it make sense to you? <laughs> <laughs> you're, not, you're not my analyst. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Look at me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So oh, why are we laughing? Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> you see. But as you said, it's a discussion <laughs> on psychoanalysis. It's not uh, therapy right now, so we don't have to uh, wonder too much. So we go back to the idea that we need to think in terms of socialization with our patient, not in a general term. Mm -hmm. Or the general term would be that it's not general, that we need to adapt to each situation. Yes. And I think you pointed that out earlier. The question of the quality of the transference is very important. Mm -hmm. Meaning that when a transference is, I would say, too rigid, meaning that the patient is really hardly aware during the session that you're not who you think you are, mm -hmm. in such a case, it's much harder to use socialization in a fruitful way. I agree. And it feels to me that it is so because every attempt to socialize will be experienced by such patient as an insult, mm -hmm. as an attack, as a dangerous breach in the frame. Mm -hmm. But when you get to a point where patients are somehow starting to resolve the transference, I think we could say that, meaning that they can decipher you from who you think you are. Yes. Then you think it becomes very interesting to use socialization to work on that gap. Can you give a general example? A general example would be a patient telling you, oh, but I know you don't care about that. Mm -hmm. With a rigid transference, you don't say anything mm -hmm. because the patient deeply needs at that moment to believe that of you and needs to be able to work with such a transferential figure. Or you would interpret in the transference, I guess. Personally, I would Personal, wait. Yeah, okay. especially if I feel, as I described, some kind of aggression. Aggression. Like you, don't, you can't understand. 
Mm -hmm. I say, fine, I can't understand. It's a statement that I have to respect. And maybe my practice is not systematic, but usually I will go back to it later when another occurrence happened. Yes. Okay. And say, oh, maybe something is happening there. Yes. I don't think everybody should do that, but that's the way I do it. And you could have the same thing, a patient telling you, oh, I know you don't care about that, or I I know you, yeah, something like this. And you could say, really, what makes you think that? Mm -hmm. And clearly in the tone you use, be like, who are we talking about? And when the patient reached a point where they can decipher you from the transferential figure, then I feel like they can be like, oh, he's right. Yes. Of course, it's not him. Mm-hmm. They might not know who they are referring to mm-hmm. and who or who they are talking to, but it might help them have a sense that in some moments they get so triggered by something that they lose track of who they have in front of them. Yes. Then I feel like the social aspect where you somewhat playing with them. Again, I'm using the term social in a very broad way, meaning actually you talk and you just don't analyze. You also interact with your patient. Mm-hmm. Then I feel like it can be useful. Okay, But then again, it goes to the question of seduction. Because as soon as you start playing with a patient, you are also in some way seducing them. And you are in a place of authority. You still are the, the object on which they project all of the figures that they love, they hate, etc. Mm. So for you in such a place to play with them, to be candid with them, might be helpful But we have to keep in mind that it might also be a seduction that can later on slow down or hurt the analytic process. I think we need to unpack that idea, what you're bringing right now about seduction. Sometimes I experience the psychoanalytic hour as a playground for some patients and in some very specific cases where we both jump into the playground. Mm-hmm. Meaning we are both the patient and myself playing with ideas and fantasies both of us in the playground. It works for some patients, but I'm not sure I would call that seduction. I would call it something different. Some may may experience that as the third, as defined by some psychoanalysts. Go on. I'm trying to understand what you mean by seduction. I mean pleasing uh the patient. Okay. And I'm not excluding it from other Mm -hmm. kind of dynamic that would be at play at the same time. Mm Mm-hmm. I think I see what you mean. And what you're saying is extremely useful. Mm -hmm. But it is a slippery slope. Going back to the example we gave earlier. Mm -hmm. Whoa, this is great. I'm not saying seduction is bad always. But I'm saying that it can actually hurt more than we realize when we are Mm -hmm. doing that. Or let's put it differently. We sometimes might feel like we are just helping a patient. That Mm -hmm. we are just being nice. And actually what we can realize later on is that us being social actually was experienced by the patient as a seduction. Mm-hmm. And that this moment actually slowed down or hurt the analytic process because they felt seduced and they wanted to please us. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you said. When you, you go and you play like as if you are in a playground, mm-hmm. it's easy to have moments where we are somewhat teasing them, creating I a sense of, I'm having so much pleasure being with you. You are giving me so much pleasure. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we're talking about two different kinds of interventions. 
For instance, and it will be uh, the object of a future podcast, I assume. In my experience, clinical experience, I at some point worked with children and teenagers who had extreme difficulties, to put it very broadly, with autism, schizophrenia, a severe borderline, etc. And we were working in two houses with gardens in the suburb of Paris, and we were doing trying to do activities. And flattery could be a good way to get things started, because mm-hmm. we're talking talking about people who would i mean i give this example because it's easy to picture hi we had this young lady probably um, 14 she looked 10 who would greet you and then violently hit her head against the wall multiple times mm. what do you do mm-hmm. you interpret no you say nothing no i would stop her <laughs> you stop her okay or and another possibility among others we didn't mention uh-huh. you say oh what are you doing to your beautiful head how many times did i hear that i would tell her personally well not for me definitely not for you <laughs> what i would say usually to this young lady would be ouch you okay doesn't hurt too much and she said no no that's fine and bam 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 and then i would move on Yes. But you can also try a very different attitude, as I said. Be like, whoa, but what about your hair? You're, you're so beautiful. You, you're you going to have some scar. And that's one example. And again, I think what I found interesting is that it was so difficult to engage because sometimes those children or those teenagers were so removed in their own world Yes, that to find yeah. a way to get their attention... Sometimes you felt like, oh, hello, handsome man. Do you want to come to the activity with us? Or, you know, you're drawing so well. Why don't you want to come with us? You're doing great. See, that's kind of... I understand. So it's it's a different frame than what we have uh, when we're working in an office. Yes. But I find that when we are working in an office, sometimes we might do that. It might not be as clear. It might not be as desperate. Mm -hmm. But sometimes we might be like... Oh, come on. This guy, he didn't want to date you? That's a jerk. I hear you. Yes. That sounds more like colluding with a patient. Through seduction. Yes. Okay. That's I what under- I mean. I understand but now what you're saying. And if you're in the playground with them, sometimes you can be like, wow, that was such a great idea you had. It doesn't mean it was not a great idea. Mm-hmm. What I'm questioning is, okay, this might turn thousands down the line. Might not. I find it. I don't. I mean, I'm coming recording this podcast without a clear answer for our audience. Yes. But I found that it is something I'm struggling with sometimes. Okay. With some patients, it doesn't come up. Already, that's a start. Like you can really see that it happens with certain kind of needs, and certain moments. I would say in, in the therapy, but found a, a slippery slope that we are facing uh, much more easily than we think. Thank you for clarifying what you mean by seduction. And uh, let me clarify what I mean by jumping into the playground. It's an exploration of the fantasy. I join the patient as we together try to explore the fantasies. It's not as if I'm looking at the patient and the patient is telling me the fantasy. I join the patient and change. What if we look at this this way? What if the person had said that? Which is more interactive with the patient. Mm. But it's an exploration of the fantasy. I see. Let's move now to how the analyst comes as a third, both in the social and outside of it. To stay an analyst means to not act 
on what we feel, but to use it to keep the analysis alive. And as we started to point out, to act carelessly on our feelings means to betray our patients. It means to put the burden on them. Like they have done something to us and therefore they should feel guilty? More like we are the one who hold the frame. Mm-hmm. And if we stop holding the frame, what I mean by act carelessly, then from my experience, from what I heard, patients feel more or less clearly that they have to be the one who hold the frame, which is terrible because it recreates often a situation where patients somehow become the adults while in the position of the symbolic child. When we don't hold the frame, when we don't do what we are paid to do, we leave this responsibility to our patients. I remember when mm-hmm. I came to the U.S. reading about articles presenting themselves usually as relationals. I insist on presenting themselves as such. Where they would shamelessly talk about themselves in the room mm-hmm. and be so proud of it. And I feel like this is a betrayal. Some patients might agree on that. I don't think that it is okay when the patients are the one paying and the analyst is the one talking. The question is what I say will advance the treatment or not. And if disclosing advances the treatment or not, it's a very difficult question to answer. On the other hand, it has become, from what I hear, kind of a part of the frame for some analysts. I would say that the question about disclosing is not just in terms of quality, but more importantly in terms of quantity. Mm -hmm. I think there are issues in terms of quality. I don't think we should disclose much of our private life. Mm -hmm. We can certainly disclose our feelings sometime about some issues. We don't have to pretend that we live in a different world. Like, for instance, many of us were very affected by the election of, let's say, Donald Trump as president of the United States. Yes. You don't need to pretend you're not affected, but you certainly don't need to go on and on about the election night and how it went for you, for instance. There might be some interesting part about disclosing something, but when you are speaking more than your patient during the 45-minute session, like no matter what you say, that I think it's going to be difficult. A, a, yeah, question. It's going to be difficult to defend that you might be advancing anything in the patient. Agreed. Mm-hmm. You see? Yeah. But I, I can hear that sometimes patients need to hear from the analyst, okay, I think I went through something similar and I understand a little bit. Like sometimes I feel like some patients feel so alone mm-hmm. that if it happens that something that you experience can be connected, you don't have to go in detail. You don't even have to say that it comes exactly from you. But you can certainly say something that conveys that you get it. Of course, with the idea that we never completely get it. In my case, what happens more often is that if I feel that it's appropriate, I may say something like, ouch, or wow. Maybe my face will convey my inner experience if I think it's appropriate for the patient at that moment. I don't go into many words. Mm. Very intense situations connected to their sense of security and safety in the world. Sometimes without using too many words, I try to convey that I can at least sense what they are going through. 
even if I don't understand fully. I agree with you. I feel like I would say something like, oh man, or okay, that's difficult. And on the other hand, where is it that we stay a third? Where do we keep that position? Because in some ways, it is also beneficial to a patient to say, what do you feel about it? To keep analyzing. Yes. And again, I go back to the, the same statement I have made before. If my intervention forecloses further exploration, then probably it was not an appropriate intervention. But we don't know that until we make it. Yeah. And then we realize, I wish I had not said that. I would say that today with our experience on psychoanalysis, not our, not just you and I, but uh, the field in general, I would certainly argue that we need to keep analyzing, but maybe not all the time that we don't need to be pure that there is maybe a time to say ouch and then eventually when the wound is a little bit healed be like work on the fantasies mm -hmm. because if you only work on the fantasies it might be insulting the patient might experience it as you denying their experience yes not everything is social not everything is psychical Yes. So that is certainly the problem with staying a third. And it certainly comes specifically on the foreground when something has to be witnessed, something like a catastrophe. Mm. Also, I would say in terms of, and we will address that more in, in further podcasts, the question of transgenerational issues, uh -huh. the question of historical contexts, the question of economical contexts. Mm. Like we live in New York, people react in a certain way. We cannot devoid the experience in the room and the ways the patient has been impacted and ourselves have been impacted by the world we live in. So we are always juggling those balls in the air. One is the psychical experience of the patient, of myself, and of course the history of the patient and what's going on in the patient's life and in the world the patient lives in. To me, the question is, when do we integrate some kind of social comments? When is it that we stay into the internal psyche? Or when is it that we point out where a patient might be? Because clearly we can foreclose things in one way or another. But to keep in mind that it's a choice we have to make. And yes, it will certainly depend on the patient. It will depend on the phase in of the therapy. But preaching the choir, I think that's what we preaching say. Preaching to the choir? Yeah. <laughs> to keep in mind that we are social even if we don't want to. I would even argue that even when you don't talk, you are social too. Okay, I'm going to give an example. One of our instructors at NPAP at some point mentioned an example of an analyst who would dress exactly the same way every day. And what was the purpose of that? To not show anything of his personality. Mm -hmm. That was the, what he would express. And this instructor mentioned, I think, very rightly so, that actually probably the patient just thought that the guy liked to dress the same way every day. Exactly. We don't get out of a socialization. Mm -hmm. If we just keep interpreting, we might think that we are this kind of pure breed psychoanalysts. I don't think we can escape the fact that our patients are going to think this is just our personality. Mm -hmm. They might not be wrong, by the way. It might not. <laughs> but... But, but look at the rest of the frame, meaning what do we have in our offices? It communicates something. Mm -hmm. I tend to use more color in my office than you. 
Gregoire. Certainly. So yes. it certainly communicates something about the way we socialize, mm-hmm. the way we connect to the rest of the world. And we, for instance, I don't think neither of us but pictures of people who are close to us. We don't. And yet we carry a wedding band. Yeah, we do. Uh, and so the patient may have whatever fantasies. I heard once a candidate asking if she should take off her wedding band. And the answer of another candidate was, do you use it every day? Yes, the candidate said. So, well, don't take it off while you are in the room with a patient. It makes no sense. As if to counter socialization, we would uh, create some kind of persona. Yes. But the thing is, the trick is this persona is going to be understood as a socialization from the patient. From the point yes. of view. So, so I, I guess there are details in what we say and how we say it, details of how we dress, details in the office. All of that conveys an image of who we are or what who we, we like. are portraying. We don't like, yeah. Yes, and, and there will become a screen on which the patient will project their fantasies. So now, a little bit on how it is to be a psychoanalyst in our social life. How is it for you to be a psychoanalyst? How do you feel like people react? Do you tell people that you are a psychoanalyst? I do. I tell them, and invariably, one of the first comments is, don't analyze me. Oh, yeah. Yes. (laughs) I think it will come as a shocking surprise to our audience. Don't analyze me. Uh, and it comes from friends, relatives, and so on and so forth. So that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is, what do you think I should do? Oh, yeah. That's a good one, too. Those are the two sides of the coin. One is, don't analyze me and Don't analyze do. me and please do and without charging me. Yeah. <laughs> I have uh, somewhat the same uh, reactions. I have to say that being also a clinical psychologist, I often ponder what profession I actually present. Should I say I'm a psychoanalyst? Should I say I'm just a, just a, and that's actually the case, just a psychologist? Because I feel like when you present yourself as a psychoanalyst, it is clearly more threatening than just as a psychologist. Mm. Uh, when people understand what you are actually talking about, because I remember one day I was doing a visit somewhere and a person asked me what my job was. And I said, I'm a psychologist. And really the person was just like, I mean, wondering what the hell I just said. Mm. And I had to explain I'm a therapist. Yeah. Uh, and that the person understood. Presenting myself as a psychologist is usually less threatening and welcomes, at least in the US, less reactions such as, uh, oh, don't analyze me or like asking for advice right away. Mm-hmm. Uh, in France, where the profession of psychologist and psychoanalyst is very much confused, whatever you say, you get reaction as we describe. I would say that when, when I say I'm a psychoanalyst, people still are surprised because they would expect me to be older yes, or to have more gray hair, uh-huh. which where? I don't have right now. Right now? But, but eventually. Yeah. That's an interesting point, you, the one you're raising about how you present yourself either as a psychologist or a psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. In my case, I am trying to move away intentionally from describing myself as a psychotherapist and saying more specifically, I am a psychoanalyst. And even, for example, in my website, I write down psychoanalyst and psychoanalysis and psychodynamic psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So I want to convey that idea. It's something that I can offer. It's something that I have been trained and continue to be trained to offer. And it goes 
along my understanding of the psychotherapeutic treatment, meaning that the frequency impacts the treatment. Therefore, I put that up front, meaning the higher the frequency, I think we can work better with a good number of patients. Or is it a discourse you would have with people you see in your social life? Yes, if they ask. Okay. Uh, no, I don't give them all this spiel, all the discourse, but they would ask. For example, some people think that psychoanalysts, what they do is that they listen to dreams. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I, I got that. Yes. But I would say that the answer I gave uh, since when I started uh, doing internships already was, I don't work for free. <laughs> You're so rude. I know. <laughs> But it's true, I do not work for free. Mm. I And you see, that's the thing. You can't turn off, you can't unknow mm -hmm. what you already know and all your clinical knowledge and experience. So when some people talk to you, you can hear some things. But also what I know is that no matter what I hear, it means nothing. Like for an analyst to think that they could draw conclusions on mm -hmm. someone, something someone said in a social setting. Yes. It's absurd. It is. Look how long it takes for us to understand a patient, a patient. and to bring forward a meaningful interpretation, Correct. not just a random interpretation to feed our narcissism. I might see that maybe it seems like you're presenting more anxiety. It seems like maybe you don't want to talk about that. Maybe you're more defended. I'm going to present certain clinical terms in my thinking. I'm going to think in terms of defense. I'm going to think in terms of enjoyment. I'm going to think yes. in terms of repression. How am I going to use it? I am not going it to use no it. It makes no sense to use it outside the no psychoanalytic frame. It makes, it makes no, no sense, sense to use it at least as a psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I, I can certainly be more sensitive, I feel, like some other people around me about some person's defenses or certain person's difficulty to talk about something. Yes. Or, and I can respect that faster. Maybe. But when I have people who tell me, oh, you, you should understand because you're a psychoanalyst. You should be nice because you're a psychoanalyst. I'm just like, I think there's a big misunderstanding. It's my work. Outside my office, I'm, and I try to give usually the example of a plumber. If you're one of your friends is a plumber, you're not going to ask them every time they come to fix your bathroom or your kitchen. Mm -hmm. You know? But of course, if you happen to tell them about a problem, uh, leaking water or whatever, they will probably have a better understanding than you. But if they don't have their tools, they're not going to be able to work. Yeah. I agree with you. The experience outside the room is a social experience. We may have some hints about what's going in the psychical world of the persons we are talking to or connected to, but that it's outside the room. I'm trying to be very careful about that. I don't offer advice, for example. People ask me outside, well, outside and inside the room. Let's move on now to reading recommendations. There's a little book called The How-To Book for Students of Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy, written by Sheldon Bach. And some of the uh, chapters in this book apply to what we've been talking about in this podcast. In fact, I recommend the whole book. It's very well written, very down to earth, and it's about what we do in the clinical setting. Again, the title is The How-To Book for Students of Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy by Sheldon Bach. Since we talked about jokes and what they could mean, of course, I would like to recommend jokes 
and their relation to the unconscious from our dear Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud. And as we started the podcast, uh, referencing what Nancy McWilliams said during a presentation at NPAP, I would like to recommend her book, uh, Psychoanalytic Case Formulation. And finally, even if it's uh, not completely related to what we talked about and i assume everybody who is listening to the podcast or most people who are listening to the podcast had that already ethics case book of the american psychoanalytic association thank you for listening to this podcast of discussions on psychoanalysis we look forward to your comments and questions. You can find us on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for discussions on psychoanalysis and you should find us. As we receive your comments and questions, we will respond to them in our next podcast next month. And don't forget to give us five stars on iTunes if you like the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>